We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> you talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Dew Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Episode 27 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, March 29th, 2021, day one of a work week that will include many big things. Prepare yourself for what's in store over the next few days here. We have the start of the baseball season coming up. Opening day is Thursday. We have Nationals Mets at Nationals Park on Thursday night when it's supposed to be freezing. By the way, good luck to the 5,000 or so fans who could be there? Maybe Mayor Bowser should reverse her allowance of fans at Nats Park with how brutal the weather's supposed to be on Thursday night. This is also a week in which we have the NFL's virtual league meetings per NFL insider Peter King of NBC Sports late on Sunday night slash early on Monday morning. The meetings to take place Tuesday and Wednesday, two-hour sessions each day, 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern, and a Wednesday's meeting will include 
Washington owner Daniel Snyder buying back the minority shares of his franchise. That is the day on which we're supposed to get approval, or at least a voting from the owners, and I would think we're going to get approval, regarding the Danny buying out his disgruntled minority partners. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, happy Thanksgiving, Danny. A big week for the Danny as he is set to officially become even more powerful. What happened to Danny being ousted or at least suspended? I still crack up when I think about that. What happened to, you know, Jeff Bezos becoming the new Washington football team owner? My, how things have been altered over the last week or so. The Danny becoming more powerful than ever before. Also this week, by the way, a 17-game NFL regular season is set to become official. ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter tweeting on Sunday, quote, NFL is expected to expand the regular season schedule this week to 17 games. The league had played a 16-game regular season schedule since 1978, by far the longest stretch without a change in NFL history. And quote, look, we've known this change is coming, but it will become official this week, we believe. And this change long overdue. The more meaningful football, the better. The preseason has been too long. The regular season has been too short. Make the regular season at least 17 games, and I still think you can very much do 18 games, but for now, it'll be 17, and that dopey preseason is getting cut down, it looks like, by a game. Anyway, happy Monday to you. Good to have you with us. Hope you had a nice weekend. We are back together again. The DC Sports Express is up and running. We have a lot to get to on this Monday installment of the podcast. The 2021 NFL Draft turned upside down on its head on Friday with not one but two major trades. I want to examine what happened, especially with the San Francisco 49ers moving up from 12 to 3 through a Washington football team prism, because that's what we care about on this podcast. I'm not really that interested in what's going to happen with San Francisco, you know, or what does this mean for the Miami Dolphins? Like, no, this is about DC. This is about our teams. And with the NFL, of course, about the Washington football team. And there's a lot that went down with these two trades on Friday. And what went down, especially with that Niners trade, I think says so much about that which has happened with the Washington football team and is happening with the Washington football team. So we'll get to all that coming up in just a bit. We have had another free agent signing for Washington since we last spoke on this podcast. Daryl Roberts, a corner. Or is he a safety? He's another position flex guy for Ron Rivera. I'll give you some thoughts on Daryl Roberts. Special guest on the show, Nathan Coleman of Full Press Coverage Washington, which is an outlet dedicated to coverage of the Washington football team. Nathan's a really smart guy, puts out a lot of great content about the Washington football team on Twitter, does a lot of work with the NFL draft. We're going to get into Washington's situation at quarterback, whether Washington should still consider drafting a quarterback in the first round, which non-quarterbacks are realistic best-case scenarios for Washington with that number 19 overall pick and a lot more. Guess which team now is tied atop the NHL? Yes, the Capitals. Now, they nearly blew it on Sunday, but they won. They held on. You know, it often hasn't been pretty for the Caps this season, but it also often has resulted in victory for the Caps this season. Another such win on Sunday. There is a ton of news on the Nationals and Orioles to unpack as we approach opening day, including the big Nats news on Saturday. Carter Keboom optioned to AAA Rochester 
You know, I just said so much for Dan Snyder being ousted or at least suspended as Washington football team owner. So much for Carter Keboom being the Nats' everyday third baseman in 2021. We'll get into that. Uh, the O's, by the way, they had a notable demotion of a player to the minors over the last few days as well. And I will talk some Wizards as, hey, they actually won a game over the weekend, albeit against the oh-so-lowly Detroit Pistons, and it was a game that, yes, the Wizards won, but it also was a game in which Bradley Beal got hurt. So even a win ends up being a loss for the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards! Exactly. Thank you, Stephen A. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So how about the NCAA tournament? And look, if you're only into the local teams, it's been hard to remain interested in this NCAA tournament. I get that, right? Maryland gone after two rounds. Georgetown, Virginia, Virginia Tech all ousted in the first round. VCU didn't even play its game in the first round due to COVID-19. But we have had some really good games and some really interesting developments. You know, we had, of course, the eight Sweet 16 games over the last two days. Saturday and Sunday. Most of the games, truth be told, weren't like all-time classics, but you had one game on each day that was quite good. Saturday, three-seeded Arkansas, 72-70 over 15-seeded Oral Roberts. And then on Sunday, 11-seeded UCLA, 88-78 overtime win over two-seeded Alabama, which got a deep three from Alex Reese to send the game to overtime Alex Reese, that was the only shot that the kid made the entire game. He went one or two from the field, but the one, an all-time one. But UCLA, not Bama, prevails in overtime. 11 seeded UCLA, first Elite Eight appearance for the Bruins since 2008. UCLA becomes just the second first four team to reach an Elite Eight. The other team, VCU, in that 2011 NCAA tournament, uh, in which, of course, the Rams ended up making the final four. But, you know, I got to thinking off what UCLA did to Bama about one of our teams, a team near and dear to my heart, Maryland. It was one week ago on Monday night that the 10-seeded Terrapins lost to two-seeded Alabama, 96-77. And if you recall, Mark Turgeon, during his virtual postgame press conference, said the following, regarding how his team would be remembered. Quote, I think they're going to be remembered as a team that sacrificed, was undersized, guys played out of position, and they went to the final 32, right? I mean, come on. We weren't a final four team. Come on. Let's be real. I think we maximized this team extremely well, end quote. And I said it on the Tuesday installment of this podcast. I did not like those comments. I didn't like them at all. And and I get it. Look, just a few minutes after you lose an emotional game, your final game of the season, like, I know you shouldn't hold people to exactly every word they said and, you know, parse every sentence and diagram every phrase and be like, oh, why did you say it this way? You know what I mean? It's like you're emotional. You're coming off uh, a big time development. Like, I understand that, right? But I could not stand this framing of things as, well, it was good enough what we did. And, well, our team wasn't good enough to make the Final Four anyway. Do you understand what's happening in this NCAA tournament? You have multiple double-digit seeds in the Elite Eight. 11-seeded UCLA, 12-seeded Oregon State. You have had a ton of upsets from a point spread standpoint in this NCAA tournament. UCLA over Alabama, that was a win for the Bruins as a seven-point underdog. The Bruins became the ninth team in this NCAA tournament as a seven-point or more underdog to win a game in this NCAA tournament. That's the most such victories in a single NCAA tournament 
since the field expanded to 64 teams in 1985. In the last NCAA tournament, 2019, teams that were seven point or more underdogs went 0 and 24. So you've gone from 0 and 24 in 2019 to now nine seven point underdogs winning in this NCAA tournament. That is the nature of the beast that is the NCAA tournament. Just because you're not supposed to win doesn't mean that you can't win. And for me, it wasn't just that Maryland lost that game a week ago on Monday night. It was that Maryland got ripped in that game a week ago Monday night. I mean, the game became non-competitive. Maryland ended up losing by 19 points. Was Alabama better? Of course. Was Maryland supposed to win that game? Of course not. But just because you're not supposed to do something doesn't mean that you can't do that something. And that's one of the real complaints that I and others have had about the Mark Turgeon era. Like, the team hasn't overachieved. The team hasn't had high achievement. And especially in college basketball, in which games, right, are so short, just 40 minutes, and you have this one-and-done postseason format that Maryland has not made it to any place beyond the Sweet 16, that Maryland has made it to just one Sweet 16. It's not some awful run. No one is saying that Turgeon's been a terrible head coach, but it's this, you know, high floor, low ceiling environment in which you do more or less as you're supposed to do, and you're never really bad, but you're never great, you know? You're good enough to never be bad, but you're never great enough to achieve true excellence. And that's the problem that myself and so many have had with this Mark Turgeon era. And I just, it was impossible for me not to be thinking about that with what UCLA did to Bama on Sunday. All right, lots to get into on this Monday. No item bigger than what went down regarding the NFL draft on Friday. And we'll get to that next. But speaking of major developments, there's a big one going on in local real estate, and it has to do with commissions. They're going bye-bye thanks to John Grandland. Outrageous commissions have been a staple in real estate for as long as we can remember. That has never sat right with one of the great friends of this podcast, John Grandland. And my guy, John G. with Real Broker, is doing something about this. He will sell your house for free. That's right, for free. From the moment you dial John's number to the last page of the paperwork signed, he is there. He handles everything. Professional photography, detailed market analysis, a huge syndication network, and so much more to ensure you that you are not hunting for buyers for months on end. And when John finds you an offer, that which you would normally pay to your listing agent stays right in your pocket. And then John Grandlin helps you find the home of your dreams and everyone feels right at home. You get all of these great services at the lowest commission possible, zero. You can't go lower than zero. John Grandland is changing the game. This is revolutionary. To find out more about this program, to find your home's value, visit johngsellsforfree.com. The website says it all. johngsellsforfree.com. Or better yet, call John Grandland at 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Grandland, zero commission. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. So how about what went down on Friday? Not one, but two massive trades regarding the 2021 NFL Draft. Trade number one, the San Francisco 49ers acquired the number three overall pick from the Miami Dolphins, in exchange for the Niners' 2021 first-round pick, number 12 overall, 2022 and 2023 first-round picks, 
and a 2022 compensatory third round pick. Then trade number two, the Dolphins acquired the number six overall pick and a fifth round pick from the Philadelphia Eagles for that Niners 2021 first round pick, again, number 12 overall, a fourth round pick, and a 2022 first round pick. I got a lot to say about all this as it relates to our team, the Washington football team. And the first two things, truthfully, are direct indictments of someone who's no longer here, and that is our old pal, Bruce Allen. It means you're close. Yes, thank you. Hello, Bruce. So, first of all, consider now what the Dolphins have done with the Laramie Tunsil trade. As you likely remember, the Dolphins, in September 2019, as Trent Williams was holding out with Washington and wasn't being traded by Brucifer, dealt left tackle Laramie Tunsil and other assets to the Houston Texans for a package that included a 2020 first-round pick, a 2021 first-round pick, and a 2021 second-round pick. So for Laramie Tunsil, you got two ones and a two. And it was at that point, truly, that so many of us started yelling and screaming about why isn't Bruce trading away Trent Williams? He doesn't want to be here. He is older. He has become injury-slash-absence-prone. If you can get back multiple ones for the guy, why not make the move? But Brucey wouldn't do it. Well, it was that Texans 2021 first round pick that was the number three overall pick that the Dolphins dealt to the San Francisco 49ers on Friday. So the Dolphins have essentially turned Tunsil into four first round picks. That Texans 2020 first round pick Now, the Eagles 2021 first round pick and those 49ers 2022 and 2023 first round picks. You have turned Laramie Tunsil into four number one picks and also a 2021 second round pick and also a 2022 compensatory third round pick. You talk about playing chess when so many others play checkers or tiddlywinks in Brucey's case that the Miami Dolphins have turned Laramie Tunsil into four first-round picks, a second-round pick, and a compensatory third-round pick is player personnel mastery at its finest. That is a master class in asset management, what the Dolphins have ultimately generated with this Laramie Tunsil trade. That's how you maximize an asset. That's how you squeeze every last possible drop of value out of a high-level player and Laramie Tunsil. Thank you, Brucey. We're winning off the field. The other indictment of Brucey off this 49ers trade with the Dolphins on Friday is this. So, the Niners trade up from number 12 to number 3. That's moving up, obviously, right nine spots. That still was not as expensive as Washington trading up from number 6 to number 2 in the 2012 NFL draft. Right? Examine each trade. The 49ers gave up three first-round picks and a compensatory third-round pick to go from 12 to 3. Washington gave up three first-round picks and a second-round pick to go from 6 to 2. So the Niners, to go up nine spots, gave up less than Washington gave up to move up four spots. That's incredible when you think about that. Now, I know in the NFL, like, trade comps don't always work out smoothly and sort of like... The demand for a particular pick or player really ultimately drives the trade compensation as opposed to precedent. That's true. But still, like just if you're wondering, like, man, you know, we've seen a lot of these trade-ups in recent years in the NFL draft. How do they compare 
to what our team did for that 2012 NFL draft, the famous RG3 trade. You gave up three ones into two to go from six to two. That was it. It's not like in 2012, Washington went from 24 to two. Washington only moved up from six to two and yet gave up three ones into two. The Niners to go from 12 to three have given up three ones and a comp third round pick. And understand what that means. A compensatory third round pick is a pick essentially between the third and fourth round. So it's not even really truly a third round pick. It's called a third round pick, but it's tacked on to the end of the normal third round. So you gave up more to go up four spots than the Niners just gave up to go up nine spots. One more time. Thank you, Brucey. We're winning off the field. Yeah, so I think you have to start with those two items, like what they speak about things that have happened in the past with the Washington football team. As to the now, so the 49ers trading up from number 12 to number three in the 2021 NFL draft, that for sure cements at least the top three picks in the draft being quarterbacks. And this coincides, right, with the recent mock drafts that we've been talking about on this podcast. At the very least now, we know for sure, for sure, each of the top three picks in this upcoming draft will be a quarterback. Now, it may go beyond that. It may be each of the top four picks is a quarterback. It could be each of the top five picks ends up being a quarterback, right? So much of this depends on who else ends up trading up and also what the Atlanta Falcons want to do at number four, given the Matt Ryan situation. But no doubt, Trevor Lawrence is going number one to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Zach Wilson is going number two to someone, either the New York Jets or a team that trades up to that number two spot. And then either Justin Fields, Trey Lance, or Mac Jones will be going number three to the San Francisco 49ers. It really is a fascinating situation with San Francisco because you know you're not getting Lawrence and you know you're almost certainly not getting Wilson. Although, you know, it's possible, I guess, that like say a Fields goes number two overall. But you have to be comfortable with one of three quarterbacks to make a move like this. Like it says a lot about what Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch think about this quarterback draft class that they make this big move to go from 12 to 3 and are comfortable, clearly, with whomever falls to them at number 3 in terms of that top tier of quarterbacks. But this, to me, is as big as anything with what the Niners did on Friday. The Niners trading up from number 12 to number 3 represents yet another fail for a quarterback signed to a big money contract. And included within this phenomenon are multiple fails for teams trading massive hauls of draft picks to move up in a draft to take a quarterback. And this, I think, is what we really need to hone in on here, okay? So the 49ers on Friday were telling anyone who would listen that Jimmy Garoppolo is still going to be their QB1 in 2021. ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter reported that he was told by a source with the Niners that, quote, Jimmy is here to stay. He's our guy this year, end quote. Steve Weish of NFL Network reported that he was told by Niners head coach Kyle Shanahan that Garoppolo remains in the Niners' plans. Okay, whatever. You don't trade three first-round picks and a compensatory third-round pick to move up from number 12 to number three in an NFL draft to take a non-quarterback, okay? There's no way you do that. You don't move up nine spots to take Kyle Pitts, as much as everyone loves Kyle Pitts. You know, the the Niners' plan may well be for Garoppolo to begin the 2020 season as their QB1 or to serve as, say, quarterback insurance. You know, given that the Niners do come off as a team with real designs on being an NFC contender once again in 2021 off that injury-plagued 2020. But there's no way, no way 
that this trade is anything other than for a quarterback and truthfully is anything other than an indictment of Garoppolo. The Niners have fallen out of love with Jimmy Garoppolo, point blank period. The Niners in October 2017 acquired Garoppolo from the New England Patriots for a 2018 second round pick. Okay, I mean, that's not some huge give up to get a guy who ended up being your starting quarterback for multiple seasons and who, of course, got you to a Super Bowl just a few seasons ago. But the Niners in February 2018 signed Garoppolo to a five-year contract extension with $74.1 million in practical guarantees and an average annual value in AAV of $27.5 million. And yet here we are now, and the Niners very clearly are moving on from Garoppolo. Now, maybe they don't part ways with him this offseason, but very clearly the Niners are moving on from Jimmy Garoppolo, if not this offseason, then next offseason, and there's no guarantee he's going to be their starter in this upcoming season. $27.5 million per year, $74.1 million in practical guarantees, and San Fran has had enough of Jimmy Garoppolo, even though, again, he won them an NFC championship. How about the Los Angeles Rams with Jared Goff? And here now is where we get to teams giving up a horde of draft picks to take a quarterback. The Rams in April 2016 traded a 2016 first-round pick, number 15 overall, a 2017 first-round pick, two 2016 second-round picks, a 2016 third-round pick, and a 2017 third-round pick to the Tennessee Titans for their 2016 first-round pick, number one overall, a 2016 fourth-round pick, and a 2016 sixth-round pick. The Rams, of course, used that 2016 number one overall pick on golf. So to move up from 15 to one to take golf, the Rams gave up two ones, two twos, and two threes. The Rams then signed golf to a big money contract extension. September 2019, the Rams signed golf to a four-year, $134 million extension that was to run from 2021 through 2024. The deal included $57 million guaranteed at signing. And yet, of course, the Rams, in news that came out on January 30th of this year, well before the offseason really truly got going, right? That was before the Super Bowl. And well before the contract extension kicked in, again, the golf extension isn't even supposed to begin until this coming season. And yet the Rams, before that thing kicks in, agree to trade golf to the Detroit Lions in the Matthew Stafford trade. But remember, it's not just golf for Stafford. It's golf, first round picks in 2022 and 2023, and a 2021 third round pick for Detroit Lions quarterback, Matthew Stafford, right? Now with the Rams. So the Rams gave up two ones, two twos, and two threes to take golf, and then ended up attaching to golf two more ones and a three to get Stafford. Think about all that the Rams ended up whizzing away when it came to Jared Goff to say nothing of having signed him to a big money extension that hadn't even kicked in before the Rams decided that they had fallen out of love with Jared Goff. How about the Philadelphia Eagles with Carson Wentz? The Eagles in April 2016 traded a 2016 first round pick, number eight overall, a 2017 first round pick, a 2018 second round pick, a 2016 third round pick, and a 2016 fourth round pick to the Cleveland Browns for their 2016 first round pick, number two overall, 
and a 2017 fourth round pick. The Eagles, of course, used that 2016 number two overall pick on Wentz. So the Eagles to go from eight to two to take Wentz traded away two ones, a two, a three, and a four. You get Carson Wentz in June 2019. You sign Carson Wentz to a four-year, $128 million contract extension. Hasn't even kicked in yet, all right? Like the golf deal, not set to kick in until this coming season. The deal included $66.47 million guaranteed at signing. And yet, right, the Eagles in news that broke last month agreed to trade Wentz to the Indianapolis Colts for a 2021 third-round pick and a conditional 2022 second round pick. Now, Wentz helped the Eagles get to a Super Bowl, right? It was Nick Foles who did the work in the postseason, but Wentz was quite good in that 2017 regular season. Just like Goff helped the Rams get to a Super Bowl, just like Garoppolo helped the Niners to get to a Super Bowl. And yet all of these teams, despite having invested massive draft capital in these quarterbacks and or having signed these quarterbacks to big money contracts, parting ways with these quarterbacks, falling out of love with these quarterbacks. And we can keep going here, all right? Now, the Chicago Bears never put big money into Mitchell Trubisky, but the Bears, of course, traded away multiple draft choices to take Mitchell Trubisky. Trubisky was taken by the Bears with the number two overall pick in the 2017 NFL draft. The Bears, to get that number two overall pick, to move up, understand one spot, to go from three to two in that 2017 draft, traded 2017 first, third, and fourth round picks and a 2018 third round pick to the San Francisco 49ers. So to go from three to two, you swap first round picks and you gave up a three, a four, and another three to the Niners. That original Niners number two overall pick, by the way, could have been acquired by Washington for Kirk Cousins. Are you aware of this? Uh, Mike Jones, NFL insider of USA Today Sports, told me in an interview once, on 980, that yes, the Washington football team could have gotten that 2017 second overall pick from the Niners for old Kirky. So we have yet another indictment in our conversation here for old Brucifer. It means you're close. Yes, exactly. But back to the Bears with Trubisky. Of course, also taken in that first round of the 2017 draft were Patrick Mahomes at number 10 and Deshaun Watson at number 12. Like, all the Bears had to do was stay at three and take either Mahomes or Watson. Instead, they trade up to two to get Trubisky. And the Bears, of course, have thought so little of Trubisky that they didn't even exercise the fifth-year option in his rookie contract. And on and on we can go. The New York Jets with Sam Darnold. The Jets in March 2018 traded their 2018 first-round pick, number six overall, two 2018 second-round picks, and a 2019 second-round pick to the Indianapolis Colts for their 2018 first-round pick, number three overall, which the Jets used on Darnold. So the Jets, to go from six to three, traded away a one and three twos. Still not as much as what Washington gave up to go from six to two, three ones into two. Jets get Darnold, and Darnold, of course, so far has been woeful. Now, you could say, well, maybe he's a victim of his circumstance, and maybe that's the case. But, you know, I I think it's also a little naive to just sit here and blame all of Darnold's struggles on Adam Gase. Like, Darnold really hasn't shown that much. He's been brutal. He was dead last in the 2020 regular season out of 33 qualified quarterbacks in ESPN's total QBR at 40.1. What's the lesson here? What's the message I'm trying to get across here? These recent trade-ups into top three territories in NFL drafts aren't working out. 
whether you're talking about RG3 or Jared Goff or Carson Wentz or Mitchell Trubisky or Sam Darnold, these big trade-ups aren't working out. These teams are falling out of love with these quarterbacks sooner rather than later. And that's even with multiple quarterbacks in this mix having led their teams to Super Bowl appearances. Like, that's what's so funny about all this. You could argue with some of these, hey, it actually did work out. Goff got the Rams to a Super Bowl. Garoppolo got the Niners to a Super Bowl. Wentz played a huge role in the Eagles making and winning a Super Bowl. And yet still, these teams have wanted out from these quarterbacks in multiple instances prior to mega extensions kicking in for these quarterbacks. So I look at all this from a Washington football team perspective. And I say to myself, hmm, our team this offseason pretty clearly has decided it's not going to be making some bold, gargantuan trade-up in the 2021 NFL draft to take a quarterback. Now, it's still possible Washington takes a quarterback in the first round. But chances are, if that happens, it's going to be because someone falls to Washington at 19 or falls far enough in the first round to where that's close enough to 19 to where Washington can make a trade-up within reason to take that quarterback, all right? And I still consider both scenarios unlikely. I don't think Washington is going to end up taking a quarterback in the first round, but it is possible. But what is pretty clearly off the table now is Washington making some huge trade, giving up a boatload of picks to go from 19 to, well, it's not going to be three anymore, but say 19 to four, you know, or, you know, I guess 19 to two is a possibility, right? That's not happening. We all get that. And on the one hand, I say to myself, man, you know what? A franchise quarterback really does change everything. And nothing matters more than quarterback. And until you have quarterback figured out, by and large, you really don't have a shot in today's NFL. And we all know that Washington does not have quarterback certainty. Like, you can like what Washington has done, but there isn't some long-term plan in place where you say, okay, Washington is set at quarterback for years to come. You're maybe set for 2021, but beyond that, there are still many questions, and really, you could say there are still plenty of questions at quarterback for 2021. But you tell me, which path would you prefer our football team to have taken this offseason? Make the kind of trade that the 49ers just made, and obviously, Washington would have had to have given up more than what the Niners gave up to the Dolphins to get that number three overall pick, because San Fran was going from 12 to three. Washington would have been going from 19 to three. So would you have preferred Washington to have made this bold move up, given this recent history of trade-ups into top threes falling on their faces? Or would you have preferred what Washington has done? Sign Ryan Fitzpatrick, to an oh-so-meager, oh-so-humble, oh-so-manageable one-year $10 million contract. See what you have this year, and next offseason, perhaps, when trading up is maybe more feasible or when acquiring someone you truly believe in is more doable, you make the move to get your next franchise quarterback. I got to tell you, as big of a believer as I am in the quarterback position mattering more than anything, as much of an admirer as I am in teams making bold moves to address quarterback, I don't know how we ignore anymore how all of these trade-ups, in addition to so many of these mega money extensions, just aren't working out, or at the very least, are playing out in such a way 
that the teams engineering these things want out from the guys the teams ended up getting sooner rather than later. Teams are falling out of love with these quarterbacks so quickly, and you have to ask yourself, all that you gave up to get the guy, was it really worth it? I mean, I go back to golf with the Rams. I mean, understand, it's not just what you gave up to trade up to take golf. The one, the two twos, the two threes. It's also what you had to attach with golf to get Matthew Stafford. Two ones and a three. That's a lot of draft capital that you've spent on your quarterback situation. And you know the Rams regret having done that for golf because otherwise they wouldn't have traded him away before his contract extension ever kicked in. Like that's such a hysterical part of all of this. So yeah, man, is Ryan Fitzpatrick a long-term fixture at quarterback? No. Is either Taylor Heineke or Kyle Allen the QB1 for years to come? Maybe not, you know, probably not. But would you rather Washington have done what these teams have done and wind up more likely than not with a similar situation? I mean, the bust rate on quarterbacks in these first rounds really is something else. It, it, it's it's uh, it's one of the more fascinating things about the NFL. All of these coaches and scouts and front office executives, all of these resources spent on scouting players, all of this time spent in preparing for these NFL drafts, and these teams still have a hit rate of less than 50% on first-round quarterbacks. It really is something that teams can't get this right. So would you rather Washington have traded away a boatload of picks to move up to take a quarterback? Or is the approach that the team has taken the more sensible approach, especially when you would have had to have gone from 19 to say number three, as opposed to something like going from 12 to three or six to three or six to two or, you know, other things that we've seen uh, in recent years when it's come to these trade-ups. You know, I also think about a massive sacrificing of draft capital for a quarterback in relation to the Deshaun Watson situation. And who knows what's true with all these allegations against Deshaun Watson. But could you imagine if Washington had made an RG3-like trade for Watson a few weeks ago? Like, like if Washington had done what I advocated for, and I know many of you did too, right? Make the RG3 trade for Deshaun Watson, three ones and a two. Could you imagine if Washington had done that? What would we be thinking right now had our team given up three first-round picks and a second-round pick, and probably more, all right? Three ones or two and a player of consequence to get Deshaun Watson and he's facing 20, 20 lawsuits having to do with allegations that Deshaun committed misconduct while receiving massages. Putting so many assets into any one player, even a quarterback, comes with such big risk. And we are seeing in the NFL time and again that risk not paying off, or at the very least, not paying off enough. Not paying off enough to where teams want out sooner rather than later from these quarterbacks. Has Washington fixed permanently its quarterback situation? No. But has Washington addressed its quarterback situation this offseason in a practical, sensible, logical manner? Yes. And it may well prove to be the best course of action, especially if Ryan Fitzpatrick or whoever is the QB1 in 2021 ends up playing well. Our special guest, Nathan Coleman of Full Press Coverage Washington, coming up in a bit. Lots of good stuff with him on the Washington football team. But I did want to address a free agent signing for Washington since we last spoke on this podcast. Washington on Friday announcing the signing of unrestricted free agent corner Daryl Roberts, who 
hopefully is going to provide some quality depth for Washington at a position at which Washington has been in dire need of more depth because beyond William Jackson the third, Kendall Fuller and Jimmy Moreland, a whole lot of uncertainty for Washington at that cornerback spot. So Roberts is going into his age 31 season. He spent this past season playing for the Detroit Lions. Now he missed five games due to injury, four games due to hip and groin injuries, and then another game due to a hip injury. But Roberts over his 11 games played on at least 60% of the Lions defensive snaps six times. So when he was healthy, he was out there quite a bit, you know, albeit for a bad Detroit team. Uh, he did not finish with a very good grade for Pro Football Focus. Overall graded just 54.3 for the 2020 regular season. Now, Roberts was taken by the New England Patriots seventh round of the 2015 draft. Adam Marshall spent all of his 2015 rookie season on the Pats injured reserve list, was released in the Pats cut down to 53 for the 2016 season, got claimed off waivers by the New York Jets in September 2016, and actually played for them quite a bit over the next four seasons, 2016 through 2019, had 27 total pass defenses over 56 regular season games with 26 starts for the Jets. So this is a guy who is experienced. This is a guy who has played. I mean, you know, he's been on some bad teams, right? The Jets, the Lions. But the big thing with Roberts, I think, is he offers position flex. Daryl Roberts is someone who has played outside corner, slot corner, free safety, and box safety. You know, I called him a corner. Probably the better label for him is just plain defensive back because he's all over the place. Here were Daryl Roberts's deployments over the last three seasons for pro football focus. 2018 with the Jets, 4.4% of his defensive snaps at slot corner, 47.9% at outside corner, 40.1% at free safety, 6.9% at box safety. 2019 with the Jets, 9.1% of his defensive snaps at slot corner, 69% at outside corner, 11.9% at free safety, 8.3% at box safety. And then this past season with the Lions, 49.9% of his defensive snaps at slot corner, 41.6% at outside corner, 0.6% at free safety, 6.8% at box safety. The the point is, every season has been different in terms of how Daryl Roberts is deployed. He can do everything. Now, is he great at everything? No. There's a reason he's bounced around the NFL. There's a reason that Washington is bringing him in as a backup. There's a reason he lingered in free agency for as long as he did. But I think it's really telling that Daryl Roberts in 2018 and 2019, less than 10% of his defensive snaps in each season at slot corner. This past season with the Lions, 49.9% of his defensive snaps at slot corner. You know, Roberts has played a bunch at free safety. Roberts has played some at box safety. He's played a good bit at outside corner. He can do a little bit of everything. And we know that that is something that Ron Rivera and Jack Dorio like. They like the position flex. You've heard that phrase so many times. And it's not just an offensive phrase. Like, it's not just about guys like Curtis Samuel and Antonio Gibson and J.D. McKissick, who can be utilized as both pass catchers and ball carriers. Position flex very much applies to defensive players especially defensive backs. And the line really has been blurred in recent years between safeties and corners. You know, you think about somebody like a Cameron Curl. Cameron Curl is a safety, but he can also play slot corner. You know, Washington has deployed Kendall Fuller at outside corner, at slot corner, at safety. Like these guys are becoming more and more interchangeable. And really that's the way to look at it, especially in a league in which teams are in nickel like 70% of the time. It's not so much about how many corners are on the field versus how many safeties are on the field. It's just how many defensive backs you got out there. And Daryl Roberts is a defensive back. 
And I would think he ends up making the team just because, again, beyond your top three corners, Jackson, Fuller, Moreland, you don't have a lot of depth. You know, I know Washington just re-signed Danny Johnson, but Danny Johnson did not play on a single defensive snap for Washington in 2020. That tells you a lot about how Washington views Danny Johnson. You know, who else are you talking about? Greg Stroman? Like, okay. Uh, Daryl Roberts has got a really good shot at making this team. And in today's league, you need not just three starting caliber corners because you're in nickel so often, but you need like four or five because of injuries, right? And because of, you know, guys can underperform that sort of a thing. So I think the signing of a guy like Daryl Roberts makes sense. I mean, hopefully you don't have to lean on him a ton in 2021, but if you do, at the very least, you know he's got experience and you know you can deploy him in all kinds of ways. All right, very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Nathan Coleman of Full Press Coverage Washington, which is an outlet dedicated to coverage of the Washington football team. He's the co-host of a limited YouTube series that's just gotten going Washington football team draft day and he's a great follow on Twitter at Jayhawk Chalk underscore coming to us from Kansas City big into analytics he uses them a lot when analyzing the Washington football team so he is a man whose approach I appreciate very much Nate it's great to finally connect with you man how you doing Al thank you so much for having me I'm excited to talk ball it's nice to meet in person sort of and uh let's get to it yeah so I'd actually like to start off with uh, something that's timely, and that is that mega trade that was announced on Friday, the San Francisco 49ers trading up from number 12 in the 2021 draft to number three, and all that was given up to the Miami Dolphins to do so. And I'm just curious about your opinion on this from the perspective of Washington, which every indication is has had no interest in making a mega trade to move up, you know, albeit from further back at 19. Do you wish that Washington had made like a bold move, like what the Niners did to try to attack quarterback for the future this offseason? Or do you prefer the path that was apparently chosen, right? Signing Ryan Fitzpatrick to this one year, $10 million deal and going, you know, likely with him, but if not him, Taylor Heineke or Kyle Allen. Yeah, I mean, it always comes down to value and cost. And I'm sure they've kicked the tires with each of those teams to see how much a deal would cost, and they just weren't in the market for that. I know everyone says right now, oh, we don't, the quarterback class next year isn't good. There's not a Trevor Lawrence. There's, there's not a Zach Wilson. But you know what? Like every single year, there's a Zach Wilson who comes out. There's a Baker Mayfield. There's a Joe Burrow. So guys come out of nowhere. And remember that like NFL teams, they evaluate the last season the most thoroughly. That's the season they care about with quarterbacks. So there's still a lot of ambiguity, and there's still a lot of stuff we don't know. But and you're never going to see another time when the demand is so high for quarterback than it is right now. That could change next year. The, the supply could go up and the demand could go down a little bit. So that's that's something to keep in mind there. One of the things that to me is so interesting and that like immediately thought of when that Niners trade came out was the history of these recent trade-ups for top three picks in NFL drafts to take quarterbacks is not good, right? I mean, like RG3, Carson Wentz, Jared Goff, Mitchell Trubisky, Sam Darnold, should that history dissuade teams from doing as the Niners just did? Or is every situation its own entity and one has nothing to do with another? Yeah, I think we've all seen that uh, that graphic floating around Twitter where it has the five teams that traded up and what a disaster, you know, the trade up has been. But it's such a small sample. It's it's hard to pull trends from that, you know, like every uh, every every trade is a little different. Right. And a lot of those teams were already in a bad position to begin with. They already were an unstable franchise and they were kind of desperate to trade up for that quarterback. And in each instance, they kind of flamed out. But I mean, it, was it worth it for like the Eagles to trade up for Carson Wentz? I don't know. They went to 
to a Super Bowl, they wouldn't have gone to a Super Bowl without him. So would you count that as a total failure if, if your goal is to win a Super Bowl? And even with Gerald, Jared Goff, I mean, they went to a Super Bowl. So it really depends on what what is your success level. But there's other teams, you know, like the Bills and the Chiefs that traded up, and it seemed to work out for them. But they also had a stable franchise in place, and they were able to build on what they already had. So it's really dependent on the situation. I know it's a cliche answer, but it really is. No, and, and there's a lot of truth in that. It's not like a complete disaster with all these. It's just it's so interesting, right? Like golf got the Rams to a Super Bowl, and yet they still wanted to move on from him. You know, Wentz did as he did, but he had this horrible 2020, and the Eagles still wanted to move on from him. You know, it's like, man, <laughs> you give up a ton to get the guy. You have him for a few years. Maybe you have some modest success or maybe even sizable success for a year or two, and then you still end up cutting ties with the guy. And the other thing, two of these guys is they get signed to these mega money extensions, and like in the cases of Wentz and golf, before those extensions even kick in, their original teams are getting rid of them. Right, yeah. I mean, it says a lot about the the players when the team that drafted them wants to move on from them. I mean, you look at Sam Darnold, and he was the the best-kept secret in the NFL. Everyone knew the Jets wanted to trade him the last year. I mean, it's been very obvious. But I think one thing that's interesting is he maintained his value for the most part. I mean, he's still worth a second- or third-round pick, and he's been one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL over the past three years. So, so like, when you draft a quarterback and they bust, at least they retain some semblance of value that you can maybe trade later on down the road with Ryan Fitzpatrick he to me is someone for whom the more you dig the more you like you know especially like a lot of the analytics love Ryan Fitzpatrick like top 10 in the league in total QBR each of the last two seasons a lot of the pro football focus stuff is favorable I mean he's got his flaws no doubt but do you like Washington potentially slash likely going with Fitzpatrick as the QB1 in 2021 yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lock. He's going to be the starter. He's, he's not even in, in the same ballpark as some of those other guys. But I mean, just some of the numbers he put up are amazing. Last year, he was first in the league in under pressure completion percentage. He was second in deep ball completion percentage. He was fourth in clean pocket per- uh, completion percentage. He was fourth in play action completion percentage and he was fifth in QBR as we all know. So I mean, he, he can put up some numbers and the last four years he's ranked in the top five in explosive pass plays generated. And you, you know, the league, the league is transforming a lot. It's all about preventing explosive pass plays. And that's, that's why you're seeing more cover four. You're seeing more split safeties. It's to stop the big play. And on the flip side of that, it's all about generating explosive plays. And the one thing that Washington has always been lacking is explosive plays. You look at all their drives last year look how methodical they are it takes 13 plays 12 plays just to drive down the field and kick a field goal well we want some instant offense we want to generate points and play with the lead so we can maximize our pass rush the best way to maximize your pass pass rush and your defense is to play with the lead pin your ears back and rush the passer and that's what we need to do and that's what people don't understand like they want to just build a strong defense that's not enough you need more than that you need balance and that's what the bucks did and that's what the chiefs did too they have balance they have good defense good offense and it and it all kind of blends together. Yeah, I, I really do like how Washington this offseason has clearly said our passing game wasn't good in 2020. We are upgrading it for 2021, right? With Fitzpatrick and Curtis Samuel and now Adam Humphreys. Like, there's no sort of dancing around the issue. We're trying to maybe say, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. Like, no, it was terrible. You need to be better from a passing game standpoint. And who knows what's going to happen, but it sure feels like Washington is self-aware enough to say, hey, we got to do this thing better, passing offense, because these days, by and large, you don't do that well. Very hard to win in today's NFL. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a common theme you've seen with Ron Rivera. All the perceived weaknesses, we've seen them correct it and right away. 
It's like they become more self-aware. And I think the reason they become more self-aware is because they're doing a better job of self-scouting. And self-scouting is so valuable, but it's hard to do because you have these natural bias. You, you, you know, you overvalue your players, but if you can understand your weaknesses and how to correct it, I mean, that, that's huge for an NFL franchise. And I think that's something you're finally starting to see. And you're going to see that manifest itself in the draft as well. I mean, they, they've really narrowed down the positions that they need and now they can really go out there and attack them. And I think that, that's what I like the best about it. Yeah. And I want to get to the draft with you in a moment, but you, you did say that Fitzpatrick is going to be the QB one, no doubt. How do you view Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen? I mean, are they just never going to be more than backups? Are they projects? Are they guys we shouldn't completely discount? What do you think is the right way to view those two? Yeah, I, I think with the floor with Kyle Allen is he's a really solid backup, right? I mean, last last year he led the league in completion percentage when he played. He, he was really solid, but I don't think he has a high... I don't think he has a high ceiling, and with Taylor Heineke, it's such a small sample. Who knows what he's really like, but maybe he has a higher ceiling than we think. I mean, his best game was against the Bucks, you know, Super Bowl champion, yada, yada, but we don't know what we have in him. So, I mean, if Ryan Fitzpatrick goes out there and just implodes and is terrible, you'll have a chance to see Tyler Heineke, and you can see if he's going to have a chance down the road. But I think, like, that's the worst-case scenario is, like, uh, Fitzpatrick implodes, but it's also not so bad because then you're looking at probably a top-10 draft pick, and that's what we need anyway. So it's kind of a win-win situation for me. You either get to contend while you're rebuilding, which is incredibly rare for teams to do, or you're going to implode and get a high draft pick, which we can use on a quarterback. So it's it's a win-win for me. I think that makes a lot of sense. And and that's why I think the Fitzpatrick signing was smart. I mean, it's obviously, you know, it's a one-year $10 million deal. Like, I mean, that's what Andy Dalton got from the Chicago Bears. Like, I'd much rather have Fitzpatrick than Dalton at this point. Let me throw this out there. Let's say the former happens and they contend, or at least like they're quite good with Fitzpatrick. Do you think he could be the starter here for more than a season? I mean, we all get the age. He's going into his age 39 season, but we're seeing so many quarterbacks now push the limits of what we thought was possible from an aging standpoint. Could Fitzpatrick be the guy here for more than a season? If he leads them to the playoffs and they're that good and he has a solid season, yeah, they're going to try to bring him back. But it's not going to prohibit them from drafting a quarterback in the first round. I mean, they, they have to do it. Or they're trading for a veteran. I mean, either way, they're going to address quarterback next year. I think that's the plan, at least right now. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if he has a solid season, why wouldn't you bring him back? Uh, I mean, $10 million is a bargain. And like I said, he's he's an elevator. He's a guy who raises the play of all your skilled players, all your offense. And that's something we haven't had for a long time. We've had four quarterbacks who just do the bare minimum. Um, and, and, and the people, the, the big knock I hear in Fitzpatrick is turnovers. This guy just throws the ball away and he, he gets so many turnovers. But we've ranked in the bottom five in turnovers the past few years without him. So I would rather like generate turnovers, but still score more points, you know, like, like if I have my choice. So I, I don't understand that knock on him. I mean, you're going to have some bad games and that's okay. He's still going to, he's still going to raise the floor and raise the ceiling in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, the interceptions have been an issue, but it's not like it's this, you know, impossible to overcome issue. He also doesn't take sacks at nearly the rate that so many other recent Washington quarterbacks have taken sacks. And with the picks, and I'm glad you brought that up, that was one of the things about Alex Smith in 2020 that I feel like didn't get talked about enough. Like, you know, there's a lot of good that Alex brought to the table. We get that. But he threw picks. Like, this thing of, like, he doesn't throw picks. No, actually, he threw uh, quite a few picks in 2020. So, like, the one thing that he was supposed to be great at, he wasn't so great at this past season. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, Alex is, he had the, I think it was his career high in interception rate. So he was all over the place. He just, I think part of that is he can't generate the same, like, torque when he throws the ball. And sometimes he gets in trouble because of that. But yeah, I mean, you're going to have turnovers either way. It's, it's a part of the game, but you got to, you got to find a way around it. And I think Fitzpatrick is the answer there. All right. So with the 2021 draft, Washington with that number 19 overall pick, do you think that drafting a quarterback in the first round remains on the table for Washington? Yes. So uh, the thing with uh, like trading up for a quarterback, it's incredibly rare. The whole NFL is risk adverse, right? So when you say like, oh, I told you Washington isn't going to trade up for a quarterback, it, it's not, a, you, you don't have to be a prophet to figure that out, right? Most teams don't want to trade up, but it doesn't mean there's not like a 5% chance they do it. I'm sure, like I said before, they are in contact with all of these teams. They have an idea of the market, but the market can change on draft day with players moving around and different players getting drafted. So I'm sure they're monitoring the situation, but it's a supply and demand issue, right? You know, there's three quarterbacks locked into the top three, and then you only have two options after that, and you don't know what those two options are yet. I mean, it, it sounds like it could be any one of the three quarterbacks. So it, it could be it could be Mac Jones, it could be Lance, it could be Justin Fields. So we don't really know what the 49ers, and that that's kind of the domino to fall, and the next domino is what does Atlanta do? I mean, they're the pivot point of the draft. What are they going to do? Do they want to stay relevant and draft a playmaker and try to extend their window, or do they finally want to rebuild for the future? And I guess that's the question. Of the three potential number three quarterbacks in the 2021 draft, Justin Fields, Mac Jones, Trey Lance, who do you like the best? Yeah, for me, I have Justin Fields as a quarterback, too. Um, I, I shock a lot of people. Uh, Zach Wilson is awesome. I mean, his arm talent is off off the charts. I mean, the way he can throw off platform. But what I like what I like about Fields is he's the most accurate quarterback in the draft class, and he was the most accurate quarterback in the draft class last year. And if you go and look at his career, he's had an incredibly similar career to Trevor Lawrence. He's just one year behind him. So a lot of the struggles that Trevor Lawrence was having, you saw that this year with Justin Fields. And by the way, I mean he he has a better career yards per attempt, adjusted yards per attempt touchdown interception ratio completion percentage he beats Lawrence in all those categories so if you were to give him another year you'd be talking about him the same way you're talking about Trevor Lawrence but I mean people see the see the the Buckeye and they they just think you know he went to Ohio State so he can't be good but I mean he's a really accurate quarterback and then on top of that he's an incredible athlete I mean he's he had the number one rushing grade among all quarterbacks in college football last year so he's a dual threat and that dual threat ability is what can keep you level when you're throwing interceptions and making rookie mistakes at least you have that to fall back on. And some of these other guys like Mac Jones or Kyle Trask or guys like that don't really have that opportunity. But for me, I, I think the Niners are going after Lance. I think that's – I'm kind of connecting the dots there. If you think about like Trey Lance, all of his strengths are areas that the 49ers lack. So the 49ers have been in the bottom five in turnovers, three out of four years with Kyle Shanahan. They turn over the ball a, a ton. On the other hand, you, you look at Lance and he had 42 total touchdowns in 2019 without – uh, interception. So he's a guy who's careful with the ball. Oh, by the way, he, he excels at play action. He threw play action or RPOs on 43% of his dropbacks in college. He's comfortable, like, you know, going under center and then using play action. And he's also thrown on the run a lot. He threw 90% of his passes were on the run and he's incredibly accurate while he throws on the run. So that all sounds like things that Kyle Shanahan looks for in a quarterback. So I don't really buy the, the Mac Jones. I, I don't, I don't understand. I don't think that's true. I think that's like people connecting dots. And I know like Chris Sims has, has come out and said that. And I think part of that is he's friends with Kyle Shanahan and maybe like Kyle Shanahan is like, Hey, tell everyone it's Mac Jones, you know, like just to put it out there, but I don't really see how you can connect the dots there, but, but I get it. I mean, what do you think? 
So, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, Chris Sims has put a lot of stuff out there recently that I think just gets some attention, which, I mean, look, that's a game that people in the media play, so more power to him. But I think we should sort of be open to what exactly he's trying to do with that. Obviously, with Lance, it's just like it's such a small sample. He only really ended up having one true season at North Dakota State, and that's an FCS school. So it's like, what exactly do we know? I am, though, in the pro-Lance camp. I'm very intrigued by him. I know in some of the early mocks, some guys actually had Lance falling to Washington and Washington taking him. I would not have hated that. But, I mean, I'll grant you, like, there's a lot we don't know. And for whatever this is worth, his last game wasn't exactly his best game. Now, I don't put a ton of stock in that, but, like, he didn't leave you with, like, a great final impression in his collegiate career. One thing that's interesting, though, with these mocks, and, you know, we know they're not gospel, but they do at times have Mac Jones falling to say that, you know, 14-15 territory, that kind of a thing, New England Patriots. Do you think Washington should be in on Jones? Because that obviously would not be an unreasonable trade-up to go from 19 to 15 or 19 to 14. Or, or maybe, you know, if Jones can fall to 14 or 15, maybe he can fall to 19. You know, nobody thought Jonathan Allen would fall to 17 in 2017. Where are you on Mac Jones? Yeah, so I think people are either too high on Mac Jones, like they're comparing him to Tom Brady. You know, they're comparing him to the ultimate outlier. Or they're too low on him. They just don't like him because he had the perfect situation to play in. For me, he's a day two pick. He's probably the best, like, day two pick out of everyone, but he's going to go in round one. Um, The ideal scenario for me would be for him to fall to 19 and then for Washington to use that leverage and trade back. You know, because they need extra picks, they need extra players, and I think I, I don't see Mac Jones exactly fitting their scheme. And I've never seen Mac Jones play uh, without like a perfect situation. That's like my biggest question with him. And you can make that argument for all of the quarterbacks, to be honest. I mean, like they all had perfect situations for the most part. Kyle Trask, you know, Trey Lance, <laughs> like Zach Wilson, they all played with superior talent around them. So it's really hard to isolate and evaluate them on a whole. But with Mac Jones, like I, I think people. Uh, underestimate his ability to play like out of structure like everyone says he can't he can't play out of structure and my argument to that would be like well when he was under pressure he was so so pff had this awesome stat i listened to the other day uh, on the podcast and they were saying within three seconds if there was pressure on the quarterback mac jones had the highest passing grade in the class so anytime there was immediate pressure he he looked good i mean he was fine he also had the highest quarterback rating in the class when under pressure so he doesn't get pressure that much but he was good when he was under pressure. But I would not touch him uh, for Washington. I would look to trade back if he happened to fall. But uh, I mean, it's it's really a crapshoot. You got to go. It sounds cliche. You got to go with best player available. And I think that's the real question: is like, what does that mean? You know, everyone says it, but like, what does that mean? Is it is it coach talk or or like how does that work? And I think that's that's the question people have to ask themselves. What do you think is a realistic best case scenario in terms of guys falling to 19? Like getting beyond quarterback, just like if you're Ron Rivera, you're Marty Herney, you're Martin Mayhew, you know, you're sort of going through these war room exercises of, of that draft night and what could happen. You look at the various prospects, you look at what is probably realistic. What do you think is like an ideal scenario for them in terms of someone being available to them at number 19? Yeah, I mean, the first scenario that pops out is is uh, Micah Parsons falling to 19. I think uh, I think Ron is their laser focus on getting a linebacker. Now, I, I would argue like taking an off ball linebacker in round one 
is a losing proposition most of the time. It's just not a valuable position. If you're talking about positional value, it's maybe number nine or number 10 on that chart. But if it's some, if it's like a generational talent, like a Bobby Wagner or a Micah Parsons, then you have to seriously consider it. But I don't see him falling that far. So then the question becomes like, what do you do from there? And for me, it comes down to positional value and, and, uh, opportunity costs. Like what are you, who are you drafting and who are you giving up on to draft that person? So that's why I don't want linebacker. I think the other linebacker targets out there are someone like Xavion Collins. Xavion Collins is, is projected to go the end of round one or the beginning of day two. So I don't want to take a linebacker that early when they're supposed to go like later. And you can say the same thing for Bolton. Bolton is projected to go very early on day two. So you don't want to take a linebacker there. And then the other guy everyone talks about is Jock. I love Jock. Jock is a really exciting prospect. He's not a linebacker. He's not an inside linebacker to be honest. He played less than 220 snaps in the box the past two seasons at Notre Dame. So he's not a, he's not a Mike. He's not an inside linebacker like we're talking about. He's more of a Jeremy Chin, which, ooh, that like raises some eyebrows when you hear that, but he's a Jeremy Chin who can't play free safety. Jeremy Chin played linebacker. He played nickelback. He played strong safety, played in the box. He also played free safety. Uh, Jock can't do that. So do you really want to take a box safety who's kind of a redundant skill set with what you have with Cam Curl? I, I don't think you do because, I mean, it's a project because he's one of those hybrid players and you don't know how that's going to pan out. But for me, like I'm staring down a offensive tackle and cornerback. And I know like cornerback, like why would you, why would you want a cornerback? We just took Jackson. But I mean, you're talking about cornerback is one of the four most valuable positions in football. And if it just so happens that Patrick Sertan or JC Horn fall to 19, I mean, that the league is built around passing and stopping the pass. And that's something you seriously have to consider. And on the flip side, like offensive tackle is huge. I mean, this is one of the deepest offensive tackle classes we've seen in the past probably four or five years. And it's deep at linebacker. It's deep at receiver. It's deep at the three positions we need the most probably. Um, but with offensive tackle, I mean, if Christian Derrissaw happens to be there, that's your left tackle of the future for the next 10 years, in my opinion. And there's a few other tackles I like too, but I, I think you have to go there. Um, but, but it'll be interesting to see what they do. I, I, like, I know we can talk about like what we want to do, but Rivera and Herney and, and their brain to, brain trust could have a completely different idea. I mean, they, they might value linebacker very highly on their lists of like positional value. I mean, it's kind of hard to say, but I mean, it's really, it, it's a toss up, but you have to stick with best player available. And what that means to me is like, you got to understand fit. You have to understand opportunity costs. You have to understand positional value and you have to make an amalgamation of all three of those when you create your big board and just go off of that. Don't worry about the flashy names. Don't worry about the guy who fell. If it's not a position of value, you shouldn't be addressing it. Yeah. The the thing that I can't stand is when people say, well, now they have to go linebacker in the first round because they didn't, you know, address it in free agency. It's like, I, you don't, to me, you don't do the draft that way. You you do it, like you said, best player available with positional value in mind. That's not to say that need should never enter into the equation. Like if it's close, maybe need is a factor. But by and large, like we all understand how football works, you know, t- today's position area of strength can be tomorrow's position area of need. Like all it takes is one injury and everything can change. With that said, they've spent free agent money on Curtis Samuel and Adam Humphreys. They're bringing back Cam Sims on that restricted free agent tender. Would you be fine with them going receiver at 19? I mean, we've seen Kadarius Tony mock to Washington quite a bit. Yeah, so if Kadarius Tony was drafted to Washington, I would probably flip my TV over. Um, <laughs> he's a... Uh, 
I don't understand, like, if they're going to take a receiver, you, you need to take a boundary receiver there because, like, it's incredibly deep at slot. Like, everyone talks about the class. It's so deep at receiver. It's not deep at boundary receiver. It's deep at slot receivers. There's a bunch of them. And out of all of them, Kadarius Tony is maybe, like, number six or number seven on my list. The guy did not produce until his senior year. He didn't break out at all. And then on top of that, he has, like, off-the-field concerns. He's been – pulled over and arrested a few times and he's gotten suspended from the program a few times. Like, I don't even know if that guy wants to play football, but on top of all that, like he's not a good route runner. He had to have all of the offense generated for him. You know, there's a lot of like jet sweeps and, and screens and stuff like that. He's just, he's not the guy I would take at 19. Now on day two, like, yeah, I'd be really interested. He's kind of a little bit like, like Debo or Golden Tate. He's a guy who can break a bunch of tackles, but yeah, if you're talking about receiver round one, like it just depends. Do the, do the big three go off the board is the first question, because if they don't, I think the most likely guy to fall is going to be Devontae Smith and then you've got to have a conversation about Devontae Smith is you know if he drops to 19 I, yeah I, I wouldn't mind that at all I, mean, I understand he's an outlier but he's also he's also just done everything you can do like what else could he do in college um, but 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 another guy everyone likes is Rashad Bateman and, and Bateman's great for me I mean he checks he literally checks every box analytically there's there's nothing I don't like about him the biggest knock I've seen on him is uh is like drops and, and like drops aren't sticky from college to the NFL. There's, there's no predictability to that. What's the most predictable in the NFL for almost any position is do they break out at an early age and draft capital? Draft capital is the highest driver of success. So, so I don't think wide receiver is off the table, but for me, I'm just looking, I, I think cornerback and offensive tackle are a little bit more valuable. And, and I just, I, I would be surprised if they went receiver, but on day two, you absolutely have to look at it. And if they were going to re, uh, consider receiver on day one, another guy I love is Elijah Moore. I mean, Elijah Moore checks every single box. I know he's a slot receiver, but he's running under a 4-4. He has like 99th percentile production. He broke out at an early age. He was catching passes while playing beside DK Metcalf and A.J. Brown. I mean, he still was like good that year. So like that shows you like he can produce at the next level. But that's a long-winded answer for me. But that's kind of my options I'm looking at right now. Yeah, that's great. That's a great assessment. Another topic I wanted to get your take on is Scott Turner. And it's funny, right? Because Washington's offense in 2020 overall was not good. And yet with Scott Turner, I thought there were quite a few things to like. The frequency with which Washington threw on first downs, Washington's heavy usage of motion. Washington obviously has made it a point to acquire a bunch of position flex guys, people like Antonio Gibson and J.D. McKissick, and now this offseason, Curtis Samuel. Where are you with Scott Turner? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to truly evaluate him because he's had you know, a bottom five group of skill position players. And it's really hard and quarterback play as well. Um, but what you've seen is when the quarterback has played well, when the quarterback has executed his offense, those have been amazing games. I mean, the, the game plans are excellent. Like I remember early on, you know, I, I was excited about him, but it, you don't know until you see it on the field. I remember the Browns game. I was watching the Browns game and I, that might have been his best like play calling of the season I saw early on. But like the problem was like he would call these awesome plays, guys would get open and then Haskins would go down, down there and like throw an interception. He did that like two or three times, but you see the potential there. And when he finally got good quarterback play at the end of the year, that's when they were at their strength and go figure that his best game was in the playoffs against the Bucks, the Super Bowl champion. And that was a game where you finally saw everything open up because the quarterback could execute the offense. But I'm high on Turner. I like that. He uses a lot of motion, a lot of play actions, passing on early downs, and he looks for mismatches. And the more you get those positionless players that can create mismatches all over the field, that's how you kind of grow. That's why I feel like they need another tight end so they can use more multi-personnel packages like 12 and, you know, 21 and all that stuff. But, but I, I like what I've 
seen one thing I one like thing I don't like about Turner I would say is he runs the ball too much on second down like they'll, they'll throw the ball on first down and get an incompletion or, or, a, or a negative play and then he always always runs the ball on second and long and that's like the least optimal time to run the ball is on second and long but part of the reason he probably did that is because you can't trust the quarterback and he didn't have a confidence that they could you know complete a pass even but I like Turner and I think when you see the skill position players he has now you're going to see progression and if you don't see progression that's that's when you have to start worrying. Yeah, that playoff game against the Bucks, that that was like a master class. I mean, given the circumstance facing this great Buccaneers defense, you're starting Taylor Heineke, and it's not just that Washington moved the football in that game. It's that guys were running screaming wide open in that game. Like, that's always a telltale sign that you're out scheming the opposition. He had guys running so wide open in that game. It was so impressive, I thought. And that's like fourth string quarterback. You have undrafted free agent receivers. You have backup offensive linemen and, and backup tight ends. I mean, he did it without, you know, he, he didn't have a lot to choose from. He still made it happen. Yeah, no doubt. Well, listen, appreciate you coming on so much. Check him out on Twitter, Nathan Coleman at Jayhawk Chalk underscore. And check out that limited YouTube series, Washington Football Team Draft Day. It was great to have you on, Nathan. Hope we can do this again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. We move now to the Capitals, who, as we speak on this Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, are not just alone in first in the East Division at 50 points, two points ahead of the New York Islanders, but are tied atop the NHL standings with the Tampa Bay Lightning at 50 points. No team in the NHL has more points than the Caps have so far this season. Two more wins over the weekend, a 4 nothing victory over the New Jersey Devils at Capital One Arena on Friday night, and then a 5-4 win over the New York Rangers at Capital One Arena on Sunday afternoon. The two wins wrapping up a 5-1-0 homestand for the Caps. The two wins improving the Caps to an amazing 15-2-1 over their last 18 games. All the Caps are doing these days is winning. Do not take this for granted. There have been so many reasons for the Caps not to do well this season, be it the four prolonged absences for the Russians due to COVID-19 protocols, Alex Ovechkin, Evgeny Kuznetsov, Dmitry Orlov, Ilya Samsonov. Caps have dealt with plenty of injuries this season. Caps have a guy in his first season as head coach for the team in Peter Laviolette. Now he's an experienced head coach, but it's his first season with the Caps. The Caps are playing two rookie goaltenders. And despite all of these factors, the Capitals tied atop the NHL standings with the Lightning. Now, we do have to say this. The Capitals nearly blew it on Sunday afternoon. The Caps were up 4-0 in the third period, ended up allowing four of the game's final five goals. And this does coincide with what we've discussed as maybe being, uh, I don't want to say like a, a false sense of success for the Caps this year, because they've earned every bit of their success. But you know, the Caps, you could make the case, are not as good as the record suggests, right? That that like some of the underlying stuff, some of the process stuff that's out there doesn't suggest that the Caps should be this good in terms of 23-7-4 tied with the Lightning atop the NHL standings. And know this about the Caps now. They are now 12-0-4 in one-goal games this season. Now, you could say, well, look at, look at the Caps. They're great at winning the close game. Yeah, you could also say... There's some good luck, maybe a lot of luck involved with what's happening here. When you have that kind of a record in one goal games, you know, hockey is flukish as it is. When you're doing that well in one goal games, again, 12-0-4, that does seem to suggest that the hockey gods have been on your side 
to at least some extent. So it is something to keep in mind. And like I said, I mean, the Caps did nearly blow it on Sunday. Up 4 nothing in the third period. You end up having to cling to what ends up being a 5-4 victory. The Caps in the third period per natural stat trick had just seven 5-on-5 five five shot attempts to the Rangers' 17, including just three high-danger 5-on-5 five five shot attempts to the Rangers' 6. That was not a good third period for the Caps. This has been a problem for the Caps, closing out games, or at the very least, having a period in, in almost every game, it feels like, in which things really go poorly. And you certainly had that in the third period against the Rangers on Sunday afternoon. And what was kind of funny about that is that it was in many ways the opposite of what had happened on Friday night in that 4 nothing shutout of the Devils at Capital One Arena. The Caps uh, technically actually lost the puck possession battle uh, in that game, but the Caps finished the game with 31 shots on goal to the Devils' 24, including in the third period having 17 shots on goal to the Devils' 5. So the Caps ended that game strong, won the third period 2 nothing had 12 more shots on goal in the third period than the Devils had. You had the exact opposite on Sunday afternoon, a bad third period for the Capitals. But yes, the Capitals did win. Now, Ilya Samsonov was the Caps starting goaltender for both games over the weekend. He was tremendous on Friday night, right? Pitched a shutout. Samsonov stopped 24 shots on goal in that Caps 4-0 win. Per natural stat trick, went 6-6 to on high danger shots on goal. So really good game for Samsonov on Friday night. Not nearly as good on Sunday. Uh, so Samsonov in that game on Sunday is the Caps starting goaltender for the eighth time in 14 games. So it is starting to look like he is the number one and not Vitek Vanacek. You know, that, that is telling that Samsonov gets the two starts as the Caps are playing two games in three days over the weekend. But for Ilya on Sunday, he stops ultimately just 16 of the 20 shots on goal that he faces. You know, it's not like he was peppered with a ton of shots on goal on Sunday, and yet he only ended up stopping 16 of them. Over the first two periods, stopped all 11 of the shots on goal that he faced. But in that four-goal third period for the Rangers, Samsonov stopped just five of the nine shots on goal that he faced. And he was not good on the high-danger shots. Stopped just three of the six high-danger shots on goal that he faced per natural stat trick. And it's not like the Rangers benefited from a bunch of power plays in that four-goal third period on Sunday. Three of the Rangers' four third-period goals were even-strength goals. I I tell you, if you're a Caps fan, it is hard to know, like, should you feel great about the Caps' goaltending situation? Because again, you have this sparkling record despite having played two rookie goaltenders for so much of this season. Or is this the situation where it's like, man, you're just waiting for the goaltending situation to crumble? And I don't know. Like, there are games and stretches in which you feel good about where the Caps are at at goaltender. We've seen Vitek Vanacek play well. We've seen Samsonov play well. But there are also games where the two guys struggle, and you're just like, man, uh, what's going to happen come the postseason? And and that is the thing. Come the Stanley Cup playoffs, if Samsonov or Vanacek is on fire, then no doubt the Caps can go deep. But if either guy is struggling, the Caps are going to have a hard time doing anything in the postseason. And it's going to be another one of these Capitals postseason appearances that ends in a first or second round. It's very hard to know with certainty what the Caps have at goaltender because, again, they're playing two rookies. And with the NHL trade deadline coming up, you do wonder, is Brian McClellan looking at acquiring a veteran goaltender? Is that at all on the table so that come the postseason, it's not just, you know, the rookies and close your eyes. It's the rookies and for whatever reason they're struggling, we do have a solid veteran option that we can turn to. And no, I'm not talking about someone like Craig Anderson, who the team already has, but the guy is ancient, and I don't think that's someone at this point in his career you want to be playing in meaningful games. Now, also on Sunday was this for the Caps, over 3 on the power play 
what had been a strength for the Caps is struggling right now. The Caps now are 0 for 12 on the power play over the team's last five games. But again, the Caps won, and there are some very good things to be mindful of here. Alex Ovechkin continues to kill it. Even strength goal, 12-29 into the second period for a 2-0 Caps lead on Sunday afternoon. The goal was Ovi's 11th goal over the last 11 games. Over his last 11 games, Alex Ovechkin has 11 goals and two assists. Remember when we talked about Ovechkin, we said, boy, you know, he's having kind of a weird year, but he is showing up. It's not like he's not doing anything, but he's just not, you know, racking up the goals like we know he can. Uh, That's changed. 11 goals, two assists over the last 11 games. Uh, Ovi's goal came from outside the left circle, near the left corner with his back to the left corner. And, And from like a near impossible angle, as he shot the puck, it appeared to be deflected and then got past the Rangers goaltender, Keith Kincaid. Great net presence uh, on that goal by TJ Oshie. The goal was Ovechkin's 456 career regular season even strength goal, tying him with Brett Hull for the sixth most regular season goals at even strength in NHL history. So another milestone mark for Alex Ovechkin. And oh, by the way, he had two even strength goals in that 4 nothing win over the Devils on Friday night. Ovechkin in that game, the two goals, a team high tying four shots on goal and a game-high nine shot attempts. And Evgeny Kuznetsov had the primary assist on each of Ovi's goals in that win on Friday night. Speaking of Kuzi, he continues to produce for the Caps. He, on Sunday afternoon, with an even-strength goal, 5-10, into the third period for 4 nothing Caps lead. The goal giving Kuzi 12 points, four goals and eight assists over his last 10 games. Kuzi's goal coming on a snapshot from the slot with his left skate in the left circle off a great pass from Carl Haglin behind the net. But Kuznetsov has really started to pick up steam here lately in terms of point production. And the job that Kuznetsov did on those two Ovechkin goals on Friday night, can't say enough about that, especially on Ovi's first goal on Friday night, what was an even trend goal, 558 into the first period for a one nothing Caps lead. Caps are charging into their offensive zone. Ovi makes a drop pass to Kuznetsov above the left circle. Kuznetsov then skates the puck into the left circle, fires a great pass through the low slot to Ovi in the bottom of the right circle where he unleashed a wrister to beat the Devils goaltender, Scott Wedgwood. Some really good net presence by Daniel Sprong uh, on that play as well. And then on the Ovi second goal on Friday night, even strength tally 16-28 into the third period for a 4 nothing Caps lead. Ovi wide open, scoring on a one-timer from the left circle off a pass from Kuznetsov from the high slot. And the sequence started with a great pass from Kuzi from the Caps defensive zone just beneath the blue line to TJ Oshie deep in the neutral zone near the other blue line. And Oshie then uh, did then do a great job of skating the puck and weaving between multiple devils before getting the puck back to Kuzi. So Kuzi's been on point here lately. Some great passing. He's starting to generate some goal scoring. And I mentioned Oshie. He's been very good lately. Oshie on Sunday afternoon, had what proved to be the game-winning goal, an even-strength goal, 11:46 into the third period for a 5-2 Caps lead. Also had two assists, that game-winning goal coming thanks to great timing from Oshie. He skated around the back of the net, and then as a shot from defenseman Justin Schultz from the right point was coming in, Oshie deflected the puck with his stick and with his back to the net from the low slot just outside of the right circle, and also helping matters there was net presence from Ovechkin, and Kuznetsov. So everyone's doing a little bit of everything here these days for the Caps. Caps are getting a lot of production, a lot of good minutes from their top six forwards. Tom Wilson has been good. He had two second period even strength goals on Sunday afternoon. Did also have two tripping minors in the game, but two second period 
even strength goals, the first of which came 10-43 into the second period for a 1-0 Caps lead. Uh, the sequence starting with a block shot by Wilson in the Caps defensive zone. Jacob Vrana then used his great speed to get to and corral the puck on what became a one-on-none breakaway. His shot from the left circle denied, but Wilson then deposited the rebound from the slot. And then Wilson's second even strength goal in the second period on Sunday, 15.07 into the period for a 3 nothing Caps lead. Uh, this also was a rebound goal for Wilson as he from the low slot with his back to the net, while essentially posting up the Rangers defenseman Keandre Miller swatted at the puck in the air off a shot by Nicholas Backstrom from the left circle, put the puck past the goaltender Kincaid. Uh, no high-sticking penalty, thankfully called on Wilson, who, by the way, had two primary assists in that 4 nothing shutout of the Devils on Friday night. So there is a lot to like from the Caps here right now. You know, Backstrom has been very good. Connor Sheary in that win on Friday night over the Devils had a goal and Dan assist. Uh, some really good minutes on Friday night, too, from the Caps' third defense pair, Nick Jensen and the old man, Zidane Chara. They played really well. Caps, they're not perfect, as we keep saying, but they do keep winning. And they're atop the NHL standings along with the Tampa Bay Lightning at this point in the season. Season, it's, it's very hard to complain, you know, when you're at that point, given all the obstacles the Caps have had to deal with. You know, I didn't even mention, too, in addition to, like, the absences, first-year head coach, uh, the Caps playing the two rookie goaltenders. Caps are playing in what most people consider the toughest division in the NHL of this realignment of the division uh, for this season. Remember, you're playing nothing but intra-division games this year, and yet still, the Caps are where they are at 50 points on the season. So you just wrapped up a six-game homestand. Now comes a five-game road trip. Caps are at the New York Rangers Tuesday night at 7, at the New York Islanders Thursday night at 7, and then at the New Jersey Devils Friday night at 7. So how about the Nationals? So much to get into with the Nats as opening day is just a few days away. The Nats on Monday will play their final exhibition game. And then we are off and running into the regular season opening day on Thursday. Nats playing on opening day night, Thursday night, 7.09 first pitch at Nationals Park. Max Scherzer versus Jacob deGrom and the New York Mets. No item bigger for the Nationals over the last few days than what came out on Saturday. The Nationals demoting third baseman Carter Keboom to the minors, optioning him to triple A Rochester. And I guess what you have to say is, as big of a deal as it is, it wasn't necessarily a stunner given how bad Keboom had been this exhibition season and given what Davey Martinez had done just a few days ago. Remember, we talked about this on the podcast last week. Carter Keboom, of having been talked about as the Nats' starting third baseman during 2021 spring training, was not the starting third baseman for that 5-all Grapefruit League tie with the St. Louis Cardinals last Tuesday afternoon. And Davey Martinez, in his pregame Zoom press conference on that day, said, this doesn't mean anything, end quote. Well, it turns out it meant a whole lot of something. Carter Keboom was woeful this exhibition season. 49 plate appearances had a batting average of 133, had an on-base percentage of 204, had a slugging percentage of 222. He had more strikeouts, 17, than he had hits plus walks. He had six hits and four walks, and he had 17 strikeouts. It was not good. It was not good at all. And I think here's where you start with this optioning of Carter Keboom to AAA Rochester. You do now have to ask the question, is Carter Keboom a bust? You know, I think that's where we start. There are many ramifications to this demotion, but the first one from a bigger picture, the biggest one, 
is did the Nats blow it with Carter Keeboom? Nats took him with the 28th overall pick in the 2016 MLB draft. And this is now a third consecutive season in which Carter Keeboom has disappointed in some form or fashion at the major league level. Now, 2019, he struggled during a brief stint at the major league level. He got called up to play shortstop, remember, off Trey Turner having suffered a broken right index finger early that season. Keeble Maxey initially got off to a great start, hit a couple of homers in his first series as a major league player. It was against the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park, but then he ended up struggling and he had major defensive issues at shortstop. Okay, that wasn't his position, and, you know, the Nats kind of looked at things as, all right, we just needed him kind of an emergency scenario uh, that season of Wilmer Defoe having had issues at the shortstop position with Trey Turner injured. All right, but then came last season, right? So we're told last offseason, as we have been told uh, this offseason, that Carter Keeboom is going to be the everyday third baseman. That ends up not being the case. And things end up going so poorly for Carter that he plays in just 33 of the Nats' 60 games in 2020. And over 133 plate appearances has a 202 batting average with a 212 slugging percentage. Did have a 344 on base. He actually drew 17 walks, but he got optioned to the Nats alternate training site in Fredericksburg, Virginia last August 26th. That was basically the equivalent of being optioned to the minors last year because there was no minor league season. Then you have this offseason. Again, we're told, yeah, no, Carter Keeboom is going to be our everyday third baseman. There was the reveal from the hitting coach, Kevin Long, on March 2nd that Keeboom had undergone laser eye surgery. So now we're saying, hey, he got his eyes fixed. You know, he's going to be good to go as an offensive force. And then Davey, so interestingly and so tellingly, starts Starling Castro and not Keeboom at third base for that exhibition game last Tuesday afternoon, and that in conjunction with Keeboom continuing to struggle at the plate and also having some issues in the field, the guy gets demoted. I mean, is his career a total lost cause? No, I'm not going to say that. He's only going into his age 23 season, but you tell me. I mean, what do you think is more likely now, that Carter Keeboom fixes things and ends up being great, or that Carter Keeboom ends up never working out, at the very least not here? Like, this to me is really starting to feel like the Lucas Giolito situation where a guy is highly touted for a while, struggles with the Nats at the major league level, and it just ain't happening here, you know? And for Giolito, it has happened elsewhere, right? He's done well over the last few years with the Chicago White Sox. This may well be like a classic change of scenery is needed scenario with Carter Keeboom, but but that's a big deal that the Nats may have blown it here with him as a first-round pick. Because remember, one of the reasons the Nats allowed Anthony Rendon to leave via free agency after 2019 was that they had Carter Keeboom. And they thought they could do at third base what they did in the outfield with Bryce Harper, where they let him leave via free agency in no small part because they already had Victor Robles and Juan Soto. They had two very juicy, enticing outfield prospects. Well, not to the extent of Robles and Soto, but Keeboom was a pretty well-regarded prospect for the Nats. And unlike Robles and certainly unlike Soto, Keeboom has not delivered so far. So it makes allowing Rendon leave via free agency look even worse. Now, we arrive at sort of takeaway number two from Carter Keeboom being optioned to AAA Rochester. And that is how and why did the Nats go into spring training with no Carter Keeboom insurance? And what I'm so interested to know is the following. Did the Nats do nothing? Because that's what they did this past offseason. Nothing at third base because they felt like they didn't need to or because Mike Rizzo was not allowed to. And the answer to that question matters a lot. Was there an organizational arrogance 
to where the Nats just assumed Carter Keeboom would be good to go as the everyday third baseman, to where Mike Rizzo never really wanted or truly tried to beef up the third base situation to bring in some true competition or to bring in some insurance should Keeboom struggle or even just get hurt? Or did Rizzo want to do something and he just was not allowed to do that something by the learners? Because we know in years past, things like that have happened where Rizzo has wanted to do more, but has not been given the budget to do more or has been told that he can't do a specific move. Now, what would that specific move have been? Hard to say. I'm not in love with trading for Chris Bryant of the Chicago Cubs. He has not been the same player the last three years he was over the previous three years. This is a contract season uh, for Bryant. He'll be a free agent after this year. So, you know, this talk that's been out there for years now of, oh, the Nats should trade for Chris Bryant. Uh, not so not so fast on that one, okay? And it's not like there were, you know, definite, obvious things the Nats could have done, but there were things the Nats could have done. Justin Turner was a free agent. DJ LeMahieu was a free agent. Now, you could have brought him in potentially, uh, maybe to play second base. Although, you know, I think he wanted to go back to the New York Yankees and he ended up resigning with the Yankees. But, you know, you could have gone hard after him. You could have tried to have made that trade for Eugenio Suarez of the Cincinnati Reds. And maybe the Nats were in on Suarez, but, you know, they obviously didn't make the trade for him. Uh, Todd Frazier now is out there. You, you could have brought in the Todd father here. And, you know, maybe you still do do something like that. But it is really now notable, and it really looks bad that the Nats did nothing at third base this offseason and just kind of closed their eyes and covered their ears and went skipping down to West Palm Beach with Carter Keeblem as a plan at third base, and now that is completely flopped. And a third takeaway from Carter Keeblem being demoted is the domino effect that this has. Actions have consequences, as we know. Demoting Carter Keeblem isn't just about Carter Keeboom, isn't even just about third base. So Davey Martinez on Sunday did say in a pregame Zoom press conference that the plan going into the regular season is going to be for Starling Castro to be the Nats' primary third baseman. This weakens the Nationals defensively because Starling Castro has been better defensively at second base than he has been at third base. Now, he can play third base. It's not like he's an embarrassment at third, but Starling Castro over the last two seasons, 2019 and 2020, plus four defensive runs saved at second base over 1,100 innings. Like he's actually been a plus defender Castro has at second base. Compare that to what Castro was in his last season at third base. 2019 season with the Miami Marlins, he had zero defensive runs saved over 366 and two-thirds innings at third base that year. Now, zero defensive runs saved is not bad. That just means that you're league average but you are a plus defender at second. You're more or less league average at third base. That's a defensive downgrade. And Castro being moved from second to third means you need a new second baseman. And that's going to end up being Josh Harrison. Josh Harrison was re-signed this past offseason to be kind of like the Nats super utility man. Josh Harrison, you know, we talk about position flex all the time with Ron Rivera and the Washington football team. Josh Harrison is a classic position flex kind of guy. You can play him in all kinds of different spots. And Josh Harrison actually in 2020 was sneaky good offensively, had a 352 on base percentage Harrison did over 91 plate appearances with the Nats in the 2020 season. Nats acquired uh, Harrison off him having been released by the Philadelphia Phillies last July. Harrison is actually the latest in line of a number of people who the Nats have gotten off uh, 
those guys having been discarded by their previous teams, like people like Drupal Cabrera, Gerardo Parra. Nats have actually done a good job in recent years of taking other teams' trash, for lack of a better word, and turning those guys back into treasures. You know, like teams, DFA, cut guys, the Nats get those guys, and those guys end up being surprisingly productive for the Nats. Harrison was along those lines last season. So it's not like Harrison is completely incapable, but he was not resigned to be an everyday player. He was resigned to provide depth for the Nats. That depth has now been significantly lessened because you got to use Harrison as an everyday player. The Nats second base prospect, Luis Garcia, was optioned to the minors uh, on Saturday in addition to Keeboom. Maybe Garcia is brought back up sooner rather than later, and he becomes your everyday second baseman in 2021. But clearly, the Nats don't think that Garcia is ready just yet. You also, by the way, have made your team older in doing this. An already old Nats team is now even older with Keeboom demoted, Harrison going into his age 33 season as your primary second baseman, and the Nats on Saturday selected to the major league roster infielder Jordy Mercer and infielder outfielder Hernan Perez. Mercer is going into his age 34 season. These are two guys who the Nats signed to minor league deals just, you know, a month or two ago, and both of these guys end up making the Nationals roster. The Nats' lack of depth was already a concern. It's now even more of a concern with this Keeboom situation having completely blown up. There's no way to frame this. This is really bad that the Nats ended up having to demote Carter Keeboom. He doesn't even make it to the start of the season. Like, what does that say about him? What does that say about where the Nats are going to be and what figures to be an ultra-competitive National League East? This was not a good development at all for the Nationals, uh, demoting Keeboom on Saturday. Now look, we know it's baseball. You know, Carter Keeboom could be back up in a month and maybe the guy ends up killing it the rest of the season. Like those kind of things can happen. And I wouldn't just completely dismiss Carter Keeboom at this point, but it sure as heck ain't going well. And it doesn't feel like this thing is going to end up turning out well uh, for Keeboom, at least with the Nationals. Some better news uh, for the Nats over the last few days here as we close in on the start of the regular season. So John Lester, made his final exhibition start on Sunday. John Lester starting what ended up being at 11-3 Grapefruit League win over the St. Louis Cardinals on Sunday afternoon. Allowed three runs, two earned in four into third innings uh, through 75 pitches, 49 of which for strikes. So John Lester ends up making three exhibition starts off that parathyroid surgery. He still could get in some extra work. Uh, the Nats could have him throw, say, a simulated game. There's actually some talk now that the Nats rotation to begin the season won't be exactly what we thought it would be. It'll include the five people we thought it would include, but they may not come in the order that we anticipated. Lester actually did say on Sunday that he thinks it's best to separate lefties in the rotation. So this thing of, okay, it's going to be Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Patrick Corbin, John Lester, Joe Ross. Uh, It may not be that because if you do that, you're going Corbin and then Lester back-to-back lefties. I personally think this stuff can be way overblown of, you know, you can't start lefties in back-to-back games. Like, yes, you can. If the guys are good, it really doesn't matter that much. But if you're going to adhere to that, you could go, say, Max game one, Strauss in game two, Corbin game three, Ross in game four, Lester in game five, especially if that does allow for Lester to get some more tune-up work. Uh, Patrick Corbin did pitch in relief of Lester on Sunday afternoon and looked good. Four scoreless innings, uh, one strikeout versus one hit, one walk into wild pitch on 57 pitches. We've talked about Corbin. Nats need him to bounce back big time in 2021. Another good item of news for the Nats over the last few days is this Will Harris news. And the Will Harris news is confusing, but at the end of the day, 
it is good. So here's the Will Harris situation. On March 13th, he felt numbness in his fingers while throwing in a B game. Then now two Fridays ago, we're told by Davey Martinez that Harris has been diagnosed with a blood clot in his right arm. Uh, scary news, very bad news, and it feels like Harris is going to be out for months. You know, maybe he's out the whole year. Who knows? But Davey this past Friday night revealed that a procedure on Harris had revealed that he had not had a blood clot in his right arm, in his right arm, uh, nor had Harris had the more serious thoracic outlet syndrome. So that, that had been like really the biggest part of all this, this fear that Will Harris had TOS, thoracic outlet syndrome, which is the thing that really has, has doomed Matt Harvey's career and really has damaged other guys' careers as well. But not only does Harris not have TOS, he doesn't even have the blood clot in the right arm. And the thinking now is that Harris could be back pitching for the Nats soon. Now, what exactly was the problem for Will Harris? We don't know. This is another one of these confusing, mysterious Nationals medical situations. But the bottom line is, Will Harris, who figured to be a key part of the Nats bullpen, but who we thought might be out for months, you know, maybe the whole year, now it looks like could be back sooner rather than later. That's very good news from a national standpoint. Great to hear that. It is, like I said, another in a long line of medical confusions slash mysteries for the Nats over the years, you know, medical misrepresentations, whatever you want to say. Just in spring training alone, people, we've had the Will Harris blood clot confusion. We've had the John Lester confusion. Davey initially said that Lester had a thyroid, had his thyroid removed. Uh, then it came out that no, actually, it was a parathyroid that was removed. I know that sounds technical, but it is different. They are two different things. Uh, Steven Strasburg, by the way, uh, it turned out, we talked about this last week, the left calf strain that we were told he had suffered on March 14th. Uh, it actually had been a ruptured tendon in his left calf, a ruptured plantaris tendon. So not exactly a left calf strain. So this is just how it's been with the Nationals forever. Um, but bottom line is, are these guys going to be available or not? And when it comes to Harris, just like when it comes to Strasburg, just like when it comes to Lester, all three guys are looking good for the season. Uh, certainly Strasburg and Lester looking good to begin the season. We'll see what ends up happening with the Will Harris scenario. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, we can get caught up in the medical confusion, but you know, what matters is, are these guys going to be available for you? And it is looking like uh, maybe all three of these guys end up being available. Certainly uh, two of the three will be available to begin the regular season. One more Nationals item for you, and that is this. The extent to which Josh Bell and Ryan Zimmerman have slaughtered pitching in this 2021 exhibition season. You know, we never know what to take, how much to take from these Grapefruit League games, right? I mean, spring training baseball, it's like this house of mirrors, and what you see isn't necessarily representative of what you will be seeing, all that kind of a thing. But if we're going to point out the guys who struggle in these exhibition games, right? Carter Keyboom, Juan Soto has not had a good exhibition season. Trey Turner has not had a good exhibition season. If we're going to mention those guys, it's only fair that we mention those guys who do well. And Josh Bell and Ryan Zimmerman haven't uh, just done well. They've done spectacularly well. And what this means for the regular season, who the heck knows, right? Bell still needs to bounce back from a bad 2020. Zimmerman still needs to stay healthy. But... You cannot overstate how well these guys have done offensively in spring training. Ryan Zimmerman, over just 27 plate appearances, has six home runs. He has a batting average of 480, an on-base percentage of 519, 
and a slugging percentage of 1280. That's great for an OPS. That is just Zimmerman's slugging percentage this exhibition season. And then with Josh Bell, he over 55 plate appearances this Grapefruit League season, also has six home runs, batting average of 391, on base percentage of 455, slugging percentage of 891. Bell and Zimmerman, what is set to be the Nationals' platoon approach at first base with Josh Bell facing righty pitching, Zimmerman facing lefty pitching. So far, so great. What it means, who knows? But I think it's time to get a little bit excited about what the Nats may have at first base this year because the overall production for the season from those two could end up being quite nice. And in fact, if you combine Josh Bell's 2019 stats against right-handed pitching and Ryan Zimmerman's 2019 stats against left-handed pitching, what you get is overall production of, say, a Freddie Freeman. You get a combined 30 home runs. You get a combined OPS of 997. That's outstanding. That would be lovely for the Nats in 2021. When it comes to the Orioles, their season opening rotation is coming into focus, and there are some surprises, some major surprises, given where things stood just a few weeks ago. So the opening day starter for the Orioles remains John Means, although, man, he has not looked good over his last two starts here. John Means started on Saturday evening for the O's, what ended up being an 8-5 Great Root League loss to the Atlanta Braves, gave up five runs in three and two-thirds innings on four hits, a homer, a double, and two singles, and two walks versus three strikeouts. Now, Means, after the game, did say that he had felt tired on the mound of having gotten a COVID-19 vaccine shot earlier in the day. Uh, what he was doing getting the vaccine shot the day on which he was starting a game, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but anyway, that may well be the reason for him struggling on Saturday evening. But his previous outing, a 6-5 loss to the Pittsburgh Pirates last Monday afternoon. Uh, Means was not good in that game. Three runs in three and two-thirds innings through just 53 of his 82 pitches for strikes. What these outings mean, we do not know. He has looked good in other exhibition starts this spring training season, but it is worth noting that John Means not exactly ending his Grapefruit League season on a high note uh, with these last two outings, but he does remain the Orioles' number one starter. The number two starter is Matt Harvey. Now, On Friday's podcast, we talked about the news the previous day, how the O's on Thursday had selected the contract of Harvey to the 40-man roster, meaning that he had made the Orioles' season opening rotation. Manager Brandon Hyde on Saturday did say that Harvey will start the Orioles' second game of the regular season. So it's not just that Matt Harvey, who the O's signed to a minor league deal, is going to be in the Orioles' season opening rotation. It's that he is their number two starter which says as much about the Orioles as it does about this comeback for Harvey. But you know what? Good job by him. I mean, this is a guy, right? Uh, thoracic outlet syndrome, underwent surgery for that in July 2016. Really has never been the same since then. It's bounced all around Major League Baseball over the last three seasons. You know, New York Mets, Cincinnati Reds, Los Angeles Angels, Kansas City Royals. His numbers over the last five years are woeful. A 582 ERA since the start of the 2016 season, but the guy has fought, he has battled, and he has made his way into being, again, the number two starter in the Orioles rotation, and Harvey looked good in his exhibition outing on Sunday afternoon, what ended up being a 2-1 loss to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Harvey, two runs in five innings, so we'll see here, you know. I I mean, I keep coming back to this, right? Fix them and flip them. 
He's not here for the long haul. Hopefully he pitches well this year and the Orioles can trade him to get back a prospect or prospects. But I give the guy credit. Uh, he's fought here and he may have uh, reestablished himself uh, as a pitcher with the Orioles. We'll see. We'll see. But number two starter, man, for the Orioles to begin the season. And we now know that the number three starter for the O's to begin the season is going to be the lefty Bruce Zimmerman. Uh, Hyde on Sunday saying in his pregame Zoom press conference that Zimmerman will start the Orioles' third game of the regular season. We talked about Bruce Zimmerman a few weeks ago. So the O's acquired Zimmerman from the Atlanta Braves in that July 2018 trade that sent Kevin Gaussman and Darren O'Day to the Braves. Bruce Zimmerman has been a very good pitcher this exhibition season. Nine exhibition innings, all of them scoreless innings. Ten strikeouts versus one hit and three walks. And he has vaulted himself into the Orioles rotation. And again, as the number three starter. So you know John Means, Matt Harvey, Bruce Zimmerman. We don't know numbers four and five. We anticipate those guys in some order being Dean Kramer, who the O's got from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the Manny Machado trade in July 2018, and Jorge Lopez. Uh, the O's selected Lopez off waivers from the Kansas City Royals last August. Lopez has been a journeyman, uh, was taken by the Milwaukee Brewers in the second round of the 2011 MLB draft, going into his age 28 season. Lopez was not good over nine games for the O's in 2020, but he has pitched pretty well this exhibition season. In fact, it was Lopez who started that uh, Orioles game on Friday evening, a 4-1 exhibition win over the New York Yankees. And Lopez was really good in that game. In fact, five scoreless innings. He's got an ERA actually of 275 over 19 and two-thirds innings this Grapefruit League season, who we know will not be in the Orioles season opening rotation is Keegan Aiken. Uh, this was sort of akin to the Nationals Carter Keyboom news over the weekend. The Orioles on Friday evening optioning Keegan Aiken to AAA Norfolk. And this was an at least somewhat surprising move because Aiken had been considered likely to make that Orioles season opening rotation. Like all along, as I've been talking here, I've said to you, all right, looks like John Means, Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken are going to be in the rotation to begin the year. And you got to figure out spots four and five. Well, uh, that ended up not playing out that way. Aiken ends up not making the ball club. Struggled over four games, including two starts this exhibition season. Ten runs in nine innings on 15 hits and seven walks. Did have 14 strikeouts, but his last outing, that outing last Thursday evening in a 10-9 win over the Pittsburgh Pirates, uh, that ends up being what dooms him. Night before he's demoted, he gives up six runs in two and the third innings. And Keegan Aiken, who you really would like to work out here for the Orioles, second round pick in 2016, uh, not making the team to begin the year. Also for the Orioles over the last few days, the expected became official. The O's on Friday evening did put Chris Davis on the 60-day injured list with an um lower back strain. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we talked about this, man. This is something else, right? Chris Davis, who of course has been awful, a special historical kind of awful over the last three years, strained his lower back in the Orioles' first game of the exhibition season, never played in another game in the exhibition season. And Hyde a week ago on Monday, so last Monday, March 22nd, said that the O's were considering beginning the season with Davis on the 60-day IL. That means that he will not debut until at least the end of May, and the Orioles officially put Davis on the 60-day injured list on Friday evening. This is the penultimate year of the debacle of a contract that is the Chris Davis deal, 70 years, $161 million. Like I said, he has been a special historical kind of awful over the last two seasons. 
a cumulative wins above replacement for baseball reference of minus 5.7. It's not just that he's been below replacement level. It's that he has been like to the core of the earth below replacement level Davis has been over the last three years. And isn't it something that in the first exhibition game, the guy suffers a back strain? Ah, oh, Chris, your back is hurting you. We're going to put you on the 60-day IL. This is, to me, 100%. The Orioles are trying to bury Chris Davis. They know they have to pay him. It's a sunk cost. And so rather than try to force plate appearances on a guy who just has become a lost cause, the Orioles are saying, go sit on the sideline, you know, we'll concoct this phony baloney back injury, or maybe just exaggerate an existing back ailment. You can sit on the IL, you're still going to get paid, but we don't want to waste plate appearances on you when we can devote those plate appearances to one of our many other younger players. And I think that's 100% what's happening here. You know, maybe he does technically have some kind of a back issue, but come on, all right? You really think that, oh my gosh, golly gee, exhibition game number one, he gets hurt, and now he has to go on the 60-day IL? Like, no, this is something that either was agreed to by the O's and Davis or is just being, you know, forced on Davis where they say, listen, pal, you're getting your money no matter what. This is what you're going to do for us. You're going to go sit on the sidelines so we can play younger people and not keep wasting plate appearances on you. But the Davis news uh, did become official on Friday evening. And before we say goodbye for now on this loaded Monday installment of the Al Goldie podcast, I do want to talk some Wizards with you. The Wizards in action on this Monday night, home to the Indiana Pacers at 7 o'clock. First of a back-to-back for the Wiz. They then host the Charlotte Hornets Tuesday night at 7. And Bradley Beal is questionable for this Monday night game against the Pacers. Beal in the Wizards' lone game over the weekend. What was a win for our Wizards? 106-92 over the Detroit Pistons at Capital One Arena on Saturday night. Beal playing for just 20 minutes, 52 seconds as a starter due to suffering a right hip contusion. So we don't know how serious this is. May not play on Monday night. Kind of the irony of the whole thing is Beal, who had not been good over his previous three games, was doing quite well in this game against the Pistons on Saturday night. Like I said, a little less than 21 minutes of playing time, three of four on three, 17 points, six assists versus two turnovers and three rebounds. Now, the game on Saturday night did come against the Pistons, who are terrible. One of just two teams in the Eastern Conference worse than the Wizards this season. Uh, the Wizards were facing the worst team in the Eastern Conference in the Detroit Pistons, and the Wizards, to their credit, did as you would like for your team to do against the worst team in the conference. Wiz did not trail in any of the final three quarters, led by as many as 30 points. And so you get what has become an extreme rarity these days, uh, which is a Wizards win. Wizards winning on Saturday night for just the second time in 10 games, for just the third time in 13 games. So I don't know how much really to take from this performance. Again, the Pistons are awful. I mean, the Wizards played well defensively, uh, actually got thrashed in the third quarter, uh, 34-11, because nothing's ever easy with the Wizards. But the Wiz, over the first, second, and fourth quarters, held the Pistons to just 58 points. So, yeah, it was good. Wiz outscored the Pistons in the paint, 62-40. Yeah, that's good. But again, the Pistons are awful. I, I would acknowledge, though, just a few things. So, uh, in addition to the Beal injury, Russell Westbrook had another triple-double. Russell Westbrook, in this game on Saturday night, tied Daryl Walker's franchise record for career regular season triple doubles at 15. Understand this. I mean, whatever you want to say about Westbrook and and this wizard season, Daryl Walker played in 283 regular season games for the Bullets 
over four seasons. He was on the Bullets when I was a kid. I remember Daryl Walker. Uh, I was with them 1987-88 through 1990-91. And, you know, it's telling that the Bullets slash Wizards all-time triple-double mark had been held only by Walker because, you know, Daryl Walker, it's not like he was some great player. And yet he had accumulated the most regular season triple-doubles in franchise history. But understand, Daryl Walker's per-game averages for the Bullets over those four regular seasons included just 8.3 points, 6.5 rebounds, 6.0 assists. It's not like this guy was some all-world player back in the late 80s, early 90s for the Bullets. Like, no, he's just a guy who happened to accumulate 15 regular season triple-doubles over four seasons. Well, he did that over, again, 283 games. Russell Westbrook got to his 15 triple-doubles with the Wizards over 37 games. I mean, think about that. Walker got his 15 triple-doubles, 283 games. Westbrook gets his 15 in just 37 games. It is remarkable the extent to which Russell Westbrook racks up these triple-doubles. It, it, it really is, like, especially if you're like me and you're someone who is intrigued by the stats and likes to follow the stats, it's nuts the way Russell Westbrook does this and I know he's inefficient a lot. I've talked about that many times. He commits way too many turnovers. I've talked about that many times. But my God, this guy, every game it feels like, double-digit points, double-digit boards, double-digit assists. And on Saturday night, Russell Westbrook to tie the franchise record, 19 points, albeit on 8-20 shooting, 19 rebounds. I mean, is there has there ever been a better rebounding point guard in the NBA than Russell Westbrook? I don't think so. And then 10 assists versus, yes, six turnovers uh, for Westbrook on Saturday night. The other thing that was really notable was the debut for Daniel Gafford with the Wizards, right? This past Thursday was NBA trade deadline day. The Wizards trading away Troy Brown Jr. and Mo Wagner and acquiring Daniel Gafford and Chandler Hutchison. Uh, Hutchison has replaced uh, Troy Brown in the DNPCD territory as a uh, first-round pick who's looking like a bust. Hutchison was a DNPCD on Saturday night. We'll see what happens with him with the Wizards, right? He just got here. But Gafford was the guy who people are excited about, a young, athletic big. And for at least one game, he lived up to that billing. Uh, Gafford stood out in his Wizards debut on Saturday night. 13 points on 6-7 shooting five rebounds and three blocks. And he did all this in just 13 minutes, 32 seconds of playing time off the bench. His first bucket as a wizard was an alley-oop dunk in the first quarter off a pass from Beal. So, you know, it's early. It's one game. We're not going to overreact. But there are some things to really like about Daniel Gafford, the size, the length, the athleticism, and all that was on display uh, in just, you know, about 13 and a half minutes of playing time there on Saturday night. So good to see that. Scott Brooks, by the way, did tinker with his rotation a bit. Uh, Alex Len did continue to start. Denny Abdia, though, started off having come off the bench in 22 of the previous 23 games. And Garrison Matthews, who had become a staple in Scott Brooks' starting lineups. He had started each of the previous 21 games Matthews had. Uh, he came off the bench on Saturday night. All right. Like I said at the top of the show, a very big week is ahead of us when it comes to sports. It is great to have you with us. Continue to spread the word about the podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Continue to let me know what you think, what you want. I am here to hear from you. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. And by the way, if you missed Friday's podcast, make sure you download that and give it a listen. It's actually been one of my uh, better received podcasts that I've done so far 
Great insight from Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus on what the Washington football team has done in free agency. And also great perspective from sports business expert Marty Conway on everything going on with the Washington football team ownership situation. So again, that's Friday's podcast. That's episode 26. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. The damn Washington Wizards. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.